Amazing grace. Well, I'm a recipient of that, for sure. Good morning and welcome to the Leewood campus at uh, Christ Community Church. We're glad you're here and uh, hope school went well this week for teachers and students. Um, I know some already started, some are going to start tomorrow. So, um, the Lord be with you. I uh, was a kid who actually liked school most of the time, Um, so I hope that doesn't bum you out. Um, I didn't like all of it, though, but... um, But anyway, we're just really delighted you're here today, um, and uh, just grateful for the beautiful day, and I was just thinking as I was up here, just the privilege of worshiping the Lord together with you. So if you're visiting today, I want to give you a very warm welcome to all of you. It's great to have you here. Well, how many of you are Breaking Bad fans? I've been stunned by this show. In fact, last Sunday night, Arbitron says that 5.9 million viewers watch this show. My son Schaefer, who is quite informed about these things, said to me this week as I asked him about Breaking Bad, he said, Dad, this is perhaps the best television show ever made. Wow. I'm like, whoa, Schaefer. If you've not seen it, the story is a story about Walt. Here's Walt. He is a high school chemistry teacher who finds out he has inoperable lung cancer. And the show describes his desire to provide for his family after he is gone by entering a life of crime. What amazes me about Breaking Bad is it is a world devoid of grace, where people who sow reap what they sow. Vince Gilligan, who was interviewed recently, he's the creator of the show, was interviewed at, by the New York Times. Maybe you saw this interview. Uh, he describes what he wants his show to be about, and that is that actions have consequences. He elaborates his show's philosophy, and I'd like to share a little bit with you because it so grabs me. He said, if a religion is a reaction of man and nothing more, it seems to me that it represents a human desire for wrongdoers to be punished. He says, I hate the idea of Idi Amin. Some of us remember Idi Amin, right, from Uganda way back, this horrible dictator. I hate the idea of Idi Amin living in Saudi Arabia for the last 25 years of his life. This galls me no end. I feel some sort of need for biblical atonement or justice or something. My girlfriend says this great thing that's become my philosophy as well. She says, I want to believe there's a heaven, but I can't not believe there's a hell. There's something within each one of us, wherever we are in our spiritual life and journey as human beings, is that... We are so quick to give ourselves grace, and we are so unlikely to give others grace. Something about me that wants others to be punished for all their bad things, but I really like to escape that punishment, actually. I was reminded how stingy I am in giving grace to others, and how generous I am in giving grace to myself on my way to the airport recently. Um, on the way to the airport, I often wrestle with the speed limit. Just want you to know. <laughs> I have a plane to catch. So I'm driving this time. I'm on the speed limit. I was feeling really pious. 
This white van just comes cruising right past me. Must have been doing 80 miles an hour. Now, because my bride Liz was in the seat next to me, I didn't say anything out loud, but I thought it. <laughs> so we're driving along. I'm not saying anything. Didn't seem quiet in the car. And we get up around the corner, and sure enough, I see the flashing lights of a highway patrol person. And there's the white van pulled over. And in my heart of hearts, I thought, oh, yeah, poor guy. <laughs> you better believe I said that. I said, that's great justice it served. Oh, yes. See, we are quick to give ourselves grace, but we're very slow in giving it to others. Now, if you've been a part of our open hair journey, you know we are in this section of the prophets. Prophets are not only hard to understand sometimes, but they're hard-hitting. They're like a sledgehammer. Bam! They come at us full gun with truth, and they push us back in our seats. The story we're going to look at today is one of the prophets, but the story actually is not about a hard-hitting truth. It's more like a velvet hammer of grace. The story of Jonah really is about touching our hearts with a velvet hammer. His name was Jonah, which actually in the Hebrew language is ironic, as all of this book is. From cover to cover, irony drips off the page. Jonah means dove in Hebrew. Jonah is anything but a gentle dove. It's like a vulture. Or we might say a hawk. He lived in the 8th century B.C., and it was a bad, bad, breaking bad world. Now, whether you are familiar with the Bible or not, and some of you might know the Bible cover to cover, and something like, what is the Bible, basically, right? And I want to encourage you. I'm glad you're here and studying with us the Bible. It's the masterpiece of masterpieces. But we probably know about Jonah. I mean, Jonah's the most familiar character, apart from Daniel and the lion's den. We didn't read the Bible and know that. Or Moses parting the Red Sea. So Jonah is a familiar story to all of us. It took place in 2,800 years ago. And by all accounts, from scholars of belief and unbelief, it is a literary masterpiece of the 3rd century B.C. Or should I say 1st century B.C.? The 8th century is when it was written. I'll get it right. But it's a powerful, powerful story. How do I understand it? I understand it as a primarily a historical narrative of real people in time and place, but it is arranged often with poetry and, as I said, it is dripping with irony. Now, well, I'd like us to explore this this morning, and I'd like to follow this progression. If you are taking notes or you want to have some mental thought of scaffolding of where we're going, where I'd like us to go as we explore this amazing book is, first of all, to touch briefly on the familiar story. Then I'd like to focus more on a surprising ending of the book and then spend some time reflecting on an open question. So where we're going this morning is a familiar story, a surprising ending, and an open-ended question. First, the familiar story. In Jonah chapter 1, you heard the text read, Jonah is called by God, and it's important that God has the first and last word of this book. God is the main character. 
Jonah is a lesser character. And God says to Jonah, get up, go preach. Go preach to Nineveh, which is in the modern country of Iraq. Well, let's scoop back to the cultural location of the 8th century B.C. Nineveh was at the heart of an Assyrian empire that was known for its brutality, callous cruelty. They were known for impaling their enemies and filleting their skin. They even bragged about it. We have lots of archaeological evidence writing on stone of the exploits of the Assyrians. One reads like this, and they bragged about it. I cut their throats like lambs. Their hands I cut off. I hung their corpses on stakes and stripped off their skins and covered the city walls with them. That's what the Ninevites were like. Nahum, who is a prophet in the Old Testament as well, that comes 150 years later, describes a Nahum as Nineveh is the city of blood. The Syrians were not a nice people. Jonah wants nothing to do with them. He knows who they are. So he thumbs his nose up at God and he flees. And rather than going 600 miles to the northeast, I think we have a map up here for Assyria, see Nineveh there. He heads west to Tarshish across the Mediterranean Sea. He buys a one-way ticket, obviously. And he flees from God and... There's all kinds of irony here because fleeing from the presence of God is a rather futile enterprise. <laughs> Probably the most futile enterprise in the world. Adam and Eve understood that, did they not? He doesn't get far, and God intervenes. In fact, God is intervening all through Jonah. And you know that he takes all the circumstances, a storm, sailors throwing Jonah into the sea. One of our bright fellows called Jonah, the summary of the story is the chicken of the sea. I thought that was kind of cute. Those fellows are really smart. <clears throat> but you know the story that Jonah gets thrown into the sea and God intervenes. He's swallowed by a large fish. In chapter 2, what we have here is really Jonah's foxhole prayer of desperation. And God in his grace and mercy, God continually gives mercy and grace to Jonah, has a rather dramatic exit <laughs> for Jonah and the grubby fish. Vomits him out in the dry land. In chapter 3, God says to Jonah, basically, let's try this again, okay? In fact, the Hebrew language is just the same as the first, and it's designed that way. And God says, you missed it the first time, let's do it again. So Jonah heads off to Nineveh. He obeys, shuffling his feet, I'm sure. And what is astounding is this message is one of impending judgment, and even more astounding to us is this wicked and callous and cruel people who impaled their enemies hate to think what they did to their friends, actually believe Jonah's message. They put on sackcloth, cover themselves with ashes, and they believe in God. We don't know all the essence of their belief, but they repent. And chapter 3 ends with these words. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Isn't this a good, feel end, uh, good uh, ending, a, good, a feel-good ending? I mean, if I were writing Jonah, I would stop right here in chapter 3. Maybe with a newsflash in the Jerusalem Post, Jonah saves Nineveh. 
But there's the rest of the story of Jonah that surprises us. That's chapter 4. And the surprising ending is not a high five to God. It is an angry, sulking prophet. In verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, if you have your Bible, I'd like you to follow along with me. But I'd like as you do it, I'd like you to listen to Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of verses 1 and 3 because he literally knocks it out of the park in literary color. Eugene paraphrases verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God, God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love and ready at the drop of the hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So God, if you won't kill them, kill me, I'm better off dead. And one of the greatest surprises of the mysteries of God to me is, if I were God, I'd have taken Jonah up and his offer right there. <laughs> He's a miserable character. Jonah is also the drama king. You had drama kings in your family? I mean, I just imagine a drama king here, but it's not his drama that is on display. It is his ugly, graceless heart that is being revealed for us. In fact, even more, he passed his theology perfectly about God. He quotes Exodus 34, 6. He knew God was. God is slow to anger. He's gracious. He's loving. And what's important for us to understand is Jonah is finding fault not just with what God has done. He doesn't like that. But he's finding fault for who God is. Jonah is not just opposing God's will. He's decrying God's holy, righteous, good, and gracious character. The one who's displaying extraordinary mercy and grace is God in this gnarly prophet. I'd have zapped him to a crisp right here. Not God. Repeatedly, God extends grace and mercy to Jonah. Unbelievable. And he simply asked Jonah a question. Why the heck are you so angry? That's a little bit of my paraphrase. Basically saying, you don't have a reason to be angry. So here we have an angry prophet who wants it both ways. This is what Jonah, the book, is telling us. Jonah wants grace. He wants to receive it from God. He's been receiving it in bucket loads in this story. But he doesn't want to give a trickle of grace to anyone else. So we have this picture of Jonah, this sulking prophet who goes outside the city walls. And the implication, the text is very nuanced here. He's looking, he's far enough in case God wipes the city out. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? <laughs> so I have this picture, he's kind of backed away, you know, so he's not going to get fried like a crisp. And he's like, okay, God, come on. And it's so funny because in the hot desert sun, it's beating down on Jonah. God has a lesson of grace for Jonah. A rather visual one, don't you think? The, the burning sun is beating down on Jonah, but it does nothing to melt his hard heart. There's a plant that rises up quickly. He likes it. It's the only time Jonah's up in the whole story. A little plant that gives him some shade. 
And then there's a worm that God appoints, and God is working through all of nature, sovereign God, and the worm chews the plants. That's what worms do. And he's ticked at the worm. He's ticked at God. The plant withers, and then I'm seeing this Arabic wind that comes across the peninsula. And if you've ever been or get to the Middle East and you're a time when the east wind blows across the desert, it literally dries you up like a prune. <laughs> so Jonah's a prune here. I mean, more ways than one, I'm convinced. I mean, he needed some prunes, I don't know, but he's a gnarly character. It's a pitiful picture of a prophet. And Jonah's at the end of his rope, and he asks God to take his life again. And Jonah's last words of the book, not God's last words, but Jonah's last words are revealing and disturbing. Here's the prophet of God, for goodness sakes. Here's the preacher of the bunch. And he's self-righteous, self-justifying, and non-repentant. He says, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And along with the book of Nahum, which is written to the Ninevites, same kind of time, the book of Jonah is the only book, these two books are the only book in the Bible who end in a question. The only in all of the Bible. So Jonah's message is hidden in the open-ended question at the end of the book. I told you it was a literary masterpiece. What is this open-ended question? Look, at me at, look with me at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 4. <clears throat> and the Lord said, you pity, or the text has you give mercy, that means you withhold something that, that, that somebody deserves, or grace, this, these words are brought together, or you give someone something they, don't, don't, they haven't worked for. It's an unmerited favor. So this idea of pity is this whole sense of compassion and, and forgiveness. You pity the plant. The stupid plant. I mean, there's nothing wrong plants, but that's the picture. You pity this plant, for goodness sakes, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The right hand from the left is a picture of spiritual blindness. Through an open-ended question, God drives a point home. He says, Jonah, you cared so much for a stupid plant. And you could care less for 120,000 people who have intrinsic worth, who are made in my image. Image bearers that I created and loved and are so broken, and I want to see them whole again. And Jonah, should I not extend grace to the Ninevites as I have repeatedly extended grace to you for goodness sakes? And Jonah, shouldn't you extend grace too? In God's question to Jonah is, Jonah, get a grip on grace. And the ironic and inconvenient truth confronts us, the reader, thus the question, with this truth. That like Jonah, you and I are much more judgmental than God is. The God who ultimately is the righteous judge, who has the prerogative, he gives grace more than we who are worthy to be judged do. And let's not forget, Jonah presents, the story Jonah presents, a God who is both a God of truth and grace. At Christmas time, we sing a wonderful Christmas carol, actually. It's 
a little more than a Christmas carol, is written by Isaac Watts, Joy to the World. Isaac Watts has rich theology here, and in the last verse of this great hymn, here are his words. Speaking of God, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. And over again, wonders of his love, wonders of his love. Our sovereign God's open-ended question to Jonah is an open question to each one of us. And God is saying to you and me, I have extended so much grace to you, should you not extend grace to others? Victor Hugo's Les Mes is, to me, one of the finest literary works in human history. And if you have read it or if you have seen it on the screen or live, you know that there's a contrasting worlds of two people. Javert, a world devoid of grace, a breaking bad world, and Jean Valjean, a world of redemption and grace and mercy. And we want to identify with Jean Valjean, but in reality, Victor Hugo's intention is that all of us would be reminded of the Javert in each one of our hearts. Javert could have been named Jonah. Their graceless lives tell the same story. Jonathan Swift, a very fine writer of the 16th and 17th century, wrote Gulliver's Travels, which is a classic English work that I trust you have read or will read. It's brilliant. Jonathan Swift was an amazing satirist in English history, and he wrote these scathing lines that capture Jonah's heart better in my mind than anything else. Where is Jonah at at the end of the story? Jonathan Swift says, We are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. There is no place in heaven for you. We can't. Heaven's already crammed. See, Jesus not only spoke about Jonah and emphasized Jonah was a real historical person, by the way. He repeatedly, as he read Jonah's scroll as a kid in the synagogue, it seeped into his life. And many of his stories reflect the Jonah story. I want to suggest to you that a common parable was profoundly shaped by Jonah's story. Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, or we may say the prodigal sons. And if you remember the story, Jesus contrasts a young son and an older son. The young son is rebellious. He flees his father. He does the unthinkable. He, he leaves. He flees. But he does come back and he receives the grace of the Father. The older son does not leave, but he's an angry, sulking son with a graceless heart. The story of Jonah reflects both of those characters in one person. Jonah begins as the fleeing, rebellious son, lost as a goose, and Jonah ends. Jonah the angry, graceless elder brother lost as a goose. There's a part of Jonah in all of us. There's a part of being rebellious and fleeing God in disobedience, and there's a part of us that is graceless to others. 
And what stands out to me is what's so amazing about grace is my sinful heart and your sinful heart have this love-hate relationship with it if we're transparent. We want to receive grace, but we don't want to give it to others. We don't want them to receive it. We want it both ways. And in Jesus' parable and Jonah's story, we are told we cannot have it both ways. And Jesus' parable also reminds us that the Ninevites in our lives are not just people way away from us. They are often members of our own family. Spouses, fathers, mothers, children whose actions and lifestyles and decisions convince us they are deserving of what they have sown, that they are beyond the grace of God, beyond us extending grace to them. Jesus said, love your enemies. But if we understand the truths of Jonah and Jesus, the category of enemy melts away into irrelevance before all holy and righteous God. We are all vile sinners, enemies of God and in need of his grace. The apostle Paul writes, Christ died for the ungodly. And when you hear those words, who are the ungodly that come to your mind? Is it those people out there, those bad people? Or is it you and me? Jonah tells us in the story, the ungodly are not just those bad people. The ungodly is you and me. The good news of the gospel is a message of amazing love and amazing grace. In John 3.16, we hear the words of God's broken and impassioned heart for a lost world, for God so loved the world. The Ninevites, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Have you experienced the transforming grace of the gospel? The amazing grace. When we experience the grace of the gospel, we embrace Christ's atoning sacrifice for us on the cross, his glorious resurrection. There is a grace awakening that takes place in our life. Not only do we receive grace as a vile sinner, we now breathe grace, we extend grace, and we proclaim grace to others. The gospel brings a grace awakening to us and to a people and to a church. So who are the Ninevites in our lives? In your life and mine. Who are those people who you're having a lot of difficulty right now extending grace to? Kids, if you've been in school this week, maybe you have a teacher that you're going to, oh boy, this is going to be tough. Or if you're a teacher, maybe you have a certain student, you're already thinking, oh, this is a disaster. Will you extend grace to them? Will you look through that at them through the lens of grace? Will you see them through the lens of the cross? Kids, maybe you have a sibling that... <laughs> I, I have six of seven kids, so I had some siblings that never got caught about anything. It drove me crazy. And every now and then when they, were, they, they got caught by my parents, I have to say, I rejoiced. <laughs> I needed a lot of grace in my life. I still do. Students, maybe as you've been in school, again, there's a different group at school. My day, it was the brainiacs against the jocks. I don't know why those two could be the same, but never did they mix. There was bad blood between us. 
Maybe there's someone like that in school for you. Parents, maybe you have a prodigal child. You're wrestling in your heart of continually giving them grace. Are you extending grace to people not like you? Maybe it's a different political party, different religious faith, different income or educational level, a different ethnicity. And what I find in my life and I find in my pastoral office as I interact with you is that often we struggle to give grace to people who are struggling with a different sin than we do. And we give people grace in areas where we sin. Are we harboring anger toward the Ninevites in our lives? Have we written them off as beyond the grace of God? Are we harboring a Jonah heart? See, grace is never soft on sin. Don't misunderstand me. It doesn't push sin under the rug. It doesn't accommodate the truth for a cultural adaptation. But it looks from, at sin from the vantage point of the cross and Jesus atoning shed blood. There is no sin so bad, no sinner so far gone. They are out of reach of the grace of God. This is what Jonah teaches. So let's bring it home to where we are. We suggest three action steps. I'd like you to, if you're taking notes, to write some of this down because this message should linger this week with all of us. First, recognize grace killers in your life. Number one, spiritual pride. We often think we are the enlightened ones. It's our people. We're really spiritual and other people are not. We're often unwilling to forgive others. Max Lucado, I love his writing, says this. He says the key to forgiving others, Max is a wonderful author. He says the key to forgiving others is to quit focusing on what they did to you and start focusing on what God did for you. That's good advice. Sometimes our spiritual pride is in teachable attitudes to one another. And kids again and students, I know this is an area, it's easy to look at your parents and dismiss them. I got this, I know this. But being unteachable reflects spiritual pride. What I've discovered is prideful people are seldom graceful people. Recognize the grace killers in your heart. Secondly, watch out for prejudicial stereotypes. It's easy for us to push people at an arm's length who Jesus loves and created, even though they are in sin. It's easy for us to give them the cold shoulder rather than invite them into the transforming grace. There are all kinds of people like this in our life. We give them labels that are convenient. Gay and lesbian activists, political activists, Republicans, Democrats, right? Liberals, conservatives. I hear this more urbanites, suburbanites, homeschoolers, public schoolers. You add the category that makes it convenient for us to not love and reach out in grace to the Ninevites in our life. Third is a bitter, angry spirit. It's a spirit that walks around with a chip on our shoulder when others have hurt us. But we seldom take the time to think how we have hurt others. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, there's a very important text. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And what the Hebrew writer is saying is that roots of bitterness crowd out grace. They suffocate it. Recognize the grace killer in all of our lives. 
Secondly, take a grace assessment. If you have a piece of paper in front of you, I would like you to write this down. As a kid, I had a little measuring space my mom put on the entryway to tell how tall I was growing. And I could see my incremental growing. It was like awesome because I was a short kid. And I want to suggest to you that all of us need to evaluate in prayer how we're doing in spiritual transformation in the area of grace. Growing in Christ-likeness is evident becoming a more gracious person with your friends at school, your colleagues at work, your spouse, and your roommate. So on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd like you to write down these six questions that I am reflecting on this week in my life and evaluate how you're doing. Maybe invite someone else, a spouse, a close friend, to speak into it. First is this. Am I growing in patience and kindness with others? Secondly, do I have to get in the last word? Do I have to get in the last word? Third, am I quick to think the best or the worst of a person? Fourth, am I quick to throw stones of condemnation or pick up the basin and towel and serve others? Am I petty about other differing preferences? I'm not talking about sin here. I'm talking about preferences. Do I desire God's best for the Ninevites in my world? Six questions that I'd encourage all of us to spend some time reflecting on. Watch out for grace killers. Regularly take a grace assessment. And third, proclaim the good news of grace. St. Francis of Assisi's famous quote is used a lot today to preach the gospel and use words if necessary, but Jonah tells us, with all due respect to St. Francis, that words are necessary. Even when an inept prophet tries to utter them. Apostle Paul knew the book of Jonah well. I think he had it in mind when he said in Romans, but how are they to call on him whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And he says, it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Jonah was a gnarly character, but he had beautiful feet because of the message he proclaimed to a lost people. The book of Jonah looks to the cross of Christ and the good news of the gospel. And those of us who experience transforming grace are called to share the good news of the gospel with those God has placed in our lives, including the Ninevites, that we have a hard time extending grace to. God's last words to Jonah is his word to us today. Should I not extend grace to my lost and sinful image bearers? And should you not also? There is no person or nation so lost God says that my grace cannot reach them. When Wisconsin minister Ray Ratcliffe received a phone call that an inmate in a nearby prison wanted to be baptized, he had no idea who the prisoner was. His name, Jeffrey Dahmer. One of the most brutal serial killers, unthinkable in his crime and cruelty. Ray describes it as these one-hour meetings of discipling Jeffrey and baptizing him. 
And Pastor Roy says he was bombarded by people questioning whether Jeffrey Dahmer's conversion was sincere. He writes these words. The questioner always seemed to hope I'd answer. No, he wasn't sincere. The questioner seemed to be looking for a way to reject Jeffrey as a brother in Christ instead of seeing him as a sinner who has come to God. The subtext of such questions were simple. They didn't want to think of Jeff as a brother. Ray writes, such ungraciousness is contrary to the Christian spirit. The gospel of grace awakens us vile sinners to a brand new life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, the one who shed his precious blood for my sin and each one of our sin, we thank you for extending your amazing grace to each one of us. We confess we are often more judgmental of others than you are. That we are quick to give ourselves grace, but very slow to extend it to others. So this morning we repent of Jonah hearts, of graceless hearts and graceless lives. So fortify our lives in your transforming truth and grace. Holy Spirit, empower us to be more like Christ, to be a more graceful people.